If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. In this episode, we enter the wasteland of Joe Bielke-Peterson-era Brisbane and meet a band who went from playing in Petrie Terrace to London and Paris because they had the audacity to make and distribute their own record. The song, I'm Stranded by the Saints. It's the 70s in Brisbane, an oppressive big country town where a sense of isolation and boredom pervades the suburbs. I think it was actively anti-culture. It was deliberately depressing. When you picture depressing places, you know, I, I guess a lot of people think of grey skies. This is depressing with relentless, hot, clear, merciless blue skies. It was barren. Like We lived in a new suburb, which was pretty much created. We moved to a place called Boondall, which probably... 12 months beforehand was all bushland. It was a Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn kind of childhood where the bush uh, was very close. It was only a few blocks from our house. So I spent a lot of time on my own as well. I had my push bike and I would uh, have my slug gun. (laughs) (laughs) These were the days when a boy could ride around on a push bike carrying a, a Gun. That was Tex Perkins, who started his first band with the Dum Dums in Brisbane before moving to Sydney to form Beasts of Bourbon. Here's Chris Bailey from The Saints. In my mind's eye, Brisbane from my youth is a black and white American art film. I think of uh, Brisbane as sort of Texas or something. My teenage years feel like that. <clears throat> and the reality is whenever I go back, it's a very colourful subtropical paradise covered in cement and morons. Um, and it's funny, reality and memory. What's the American connection? Like why an American black and white movie? The, the streets, I think. The big streets. I, I lived quite far from the town of, of Brisbane, was on the other side of a very big highway. Even though Brisbane was quite little and rural, I had the notion that I had to cross freeways and highways to get places. They still kind of delineate, this is a posh area, this is somewhere that you shouldn't go, you shouldn't cross this freeway. I've never thought about this before, but I guess the whole other side of the tracks thing, because, funny enough, there wasn't a railway that went as far as where I lived, even though I did work for Queensland Railways in my youth. So railway tracks loom large in my brain. So you had all these freeways, but you didn't feel like you were going to ever be on one? Yeah. yeah. I mean, crossing them was problematic, let's say. One of the things that I liked about where I grew up was that there was a, a very large cow paddock like behind the house where, where I lived with my parents and made it feel sort of like you're living in the country in a lot of ways. And that's still there. Well, not the cow paddock, but it's now a combination of Ed Cooper Park and a golf course. But because I've been seeing my parents a lot recently, I'm kind of reminded of how isolated but sort of insular it sort of feels. It doesn't take much to feel like you're not in a big town, which Brisbane wasn't particularly, but it still has that sort of slightly country town feel where where I grew up. Growing up in Brisbane at that period, people have a long list of 
reasons why they felt they didn't belong. Being of an artistic nature, my idea of happiness was a book, reading poetry, reading novels, listening to records. But I had the added layer of the migrant background. So yeah, yeah. Stranded spoke to that, definitely. I'm of Greek background, and that was already difficult enough because you don't look Anglo. But that age, I look pretty Greek. You'd just be treated differently. You'd be walking down the street in the suburbs sometimes and people would shout at you from cars, young hoons, and they call you a wog or, or whatever. It would happen often enough to make you feel like, I don't really belong here. That was Ed Cooper from The Saints and author Anthony McCreese. For Tex Perkins, the defining culture of the place was violence and sadism. I was going to a Catholic boys' school. The last one was this place called Nudgy College, which was it was like you were in the 50s. You know, there was violence everywhere. There was free-form violence from the lay teachers. Seriously, I don't know how they collected such a group of fucking people that were just on the edge all the time, ready to explode. If you farted, you would be slapped in the face. These people were ready to hurt you. The Catholic brothers were much more ritualistic in their violence. It was, it was you will be in my office at lunchtime. And it was either two, four or six of the best. They all had them specifically designed for heating children. That's the only function it had. It was about a two-inch wide, one-inch thick piece of rubber or something. Sometimes the, uh, the real psychopaths would decorate theirs, bound them in leather or have some kind of <laughs> decoration on them. <laughs> what kind of decoration? Some sort of symbol, maybe Jesus or oh. crucifix on them. There was a lot of people dressed punk and they would just get hauled over and harassed and searched. Young men did get bashed. There was a culture of violence that extended into like bouncers in the nightclubs as well as the police. That kind of political oppression. There's that kind of corrupt environment as was highlighted that was galvanised and addressed by the Fitzgerald inquiry. It was very difficult on the young. So anyone that was different was kind of picked on. Uh, a good friend of mine was subjected to such violence, he left permanently. He was put in hospital and there was never any charges laid. That was from a bouncer in the valley. Market days at Queensland University, four Z market days, the police would attend. They'd try and shut them down. They'd try and shut down parties. But as a young person, you just have so much energy and, and we're all so busy with work and study and our social lives and navigating the world. And it's also a very fecund environment. It's very hot. There's lots of storms and there's tropical um, trees. And so that environment is, is kind of exhausting in itself as well as enlivening. That was artist Bernadette Keyes. Ed Cooper's song, Brisbane Security City, captures that oppressive atmosphere. You could get picked up by the cops for being Indigenous, for having long hair, for throwing a mango, for going to a punk gig. Here's Tex. I got arrested once for obscene language. We were, the place I mentioned, White Chairs, closed at 10pm. And so um, everyone would gather outside and discuss what they were going to do next. So we're, everyone's gathered in small groups and and I'd, I said, oh, let's just fucking start walking. And <laughs> in the next second, I'm grabbed by this man in a Hawaiian shirt and flashes his badge. He's a plainclothes cop. And he arrests me for obscene language in a public place. And I'm bundled into a car and taken to the watch house. What happened when you got there? I was wearing a, a jacket that I had written Iggy and the Stooges on the back of. It was the writing that's on the raw power. Uh, uh, art was my only thing, really. 
at that stage. So I drew a lot as my thing. The first thing you got to do is check in at the main desk. And at that point, I think I was 17. So I was underage. So I was, oh shit, I've got to lie about my age. There was a moment where I froze and didn't know what year to put down to lie. And I like, fuck, wait a minute. I got away with that. But then they said, oh, he looks like a druggie. Let's have a look. Drop your pants, mate. So they anally searched me in the foyer at the front desk of the cop station. They made me drop my pants, spread my cheeks, and they looked into my anus. Oh, my God. Yeah. This, and this is at the front desk. So there's, there's about four or five cops and other you know, people <laughs> around. Again, where do these sadists? come from it's absolutely horrifying text <laughs> but basically every time you went out especially i wasn't the most extreme punk rocker i didn't have a mohawk i had short hair and i'd wear gym boots and pants that weren't flares <laughs> and a jacket with a band's name written on it yeah the experience could be different if you had an in with the cops Here's Peter Buckley. When I first arrived, I was kind of like, where am I? It's like dead. There's guys getting around in thongs and uh, stubby shorts and surf shirts. And I remember getting beaten up one night because I was wearing these big baggies and platform shoes, which is what you wore in Melbourne. <laughs> you know, usually you get accused of being a pufta. That was the first thing. And it didn't matter who you were with. I unfortunately have this side of me that doesn't back down. I know it's dangerous. I should go, but I can't. It's a very racist town. So. Most of my friends were black, and we that kind of shared my interest. But there's always this overhanging sort of racism. There were clubs they wouldn't let you in if you were black. The police would stop us just because of driving a car full of black people. I was in a very good position because I actually worked in a job that gave me access to some respect because I was an apprentice at government house. Being at government house, we had police guards there and I was actually at the concert one night and there was like 200 people inside and there was about 300 police outside. And it's memorable for me because I think it was the band Razor, they played... I'm not your stepping stone. And so that kind of resonates for that evening with me. And then I walked outside with my mates and we looked around and we thought, oh, we're in trouble here. And this policeman looks over and says, Peter, Peter, do you want to go home? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he escorted us. What sort of food did you cook at Government House? Oh, it was basically haute cuisine, high-class French mostly. Yeah, whatever we wanted. So the chef there was um, a, a European chef. We'd find old recipe books and recreate menus. We actually re recreated a uh, victory dinner for Napoleon once. Wow, who for? It was the governor. And if the queen came, she would stay at government house. So I cooked for her for about two weeks. There I was cooking for the queen. And as soon as they, they serviced for dinner... I'd wash up, run home, get changed, go off and see a band. Go and listen to God Save the Queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or similar. <laughs> yeah. While punk was starting to simmer beneath the surface in the US and the UK with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, in the mid-70s there wasn't much of a music scene in Brisbane if you wanted to write and play your own songs. I'd met Edmund at, God, in year nine, so that's quite young. And I met Ivor shortly after that and then we sort of became buddies and then inevitably well, apart from girls or each other, young men have quite limited interests when we weren't beekeepers. What attracted us to each other was 
<clears throat> rebellion, long hair, and the associated thing at that time was obviously an interest in music. The, the, the musical scene was fairly low-key here. All the bands basically were cover bands. And by cover band, I mean, I know the Saints played some songs that we didn't write, but they were bands that did what was uh, on the top 40 chart, and they didn't do interpretations. They tried to play them as close as they possibly could to the recorded versions. So in that regard, there weren't any sort of outlets for what we were doing at all. Started out by hiring uh, suburban halls to rehearse in, put on a show ourselves at night, and that's what we started doing. Because there, there was no way in the world that we would have been booked by any of the agencies. We wanted to be a band, I wanted a band, and I wanted to write songs and play guitar, and the others were all in on it. So you knew Chris at high school? Yeah. So did you always dream together of having a band or was it a bit more no. sort of ad hoc? It, 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 we both like music. Ivor liked music. Ivor played piano. I didn't know Chris could sing. Uh, I was fairly drunk at a high school party and there was a band playing and I thought they were really terrible. So I got up and took over and started playing some song and Chris jumped up and Ivor jumped up as well and kind of went from there. When you got up on stage and started playing, at what point did you think, oh, this is what I want to do? And also we are doing something totally unique. Probably the very first time I did it, actually. Without rehearsing, just went up and played a couple of 12 bars. And it, in my mind's eye, that's when it clicked for me that, ah, this, I can do this thing because as, as a vacuous youth, I'd had no real ambition to be anything because you could get by without too much money in Brisbane in the seventies. So I, I had no uh, formal training to be anything. And I, I also don't think I wanted to be a pop star really. But once I'd been on stage, this whole thing just became very natural. And we were very disciplined. We rehearsed every week. All we talked about was friggin' music. All we did was music. That was all there was, really. That was Chris and Ed. Here's Wayne Baker from the band Plug Uglies. The first time I saw the Saints, they were called Kid Callahan and the Eternals at a little uh, hall in Sherwood, Brisbane. Chris Bailey lived out of Anala, which was a public housing area, and a lot of the Anala boys showed up. And I remember Chris copped a punch in the mouth that night. But that was pretty standard stuff in a way. A lot of those early dances ended in basically teenage boys having fights. He walked outside to see what was going on because there was a lot of scuffles. The Anala boys clocked him in the mouth. The other guy stepped in and said, no, no, he's, on, he's with us, he's with us. So I would have been a very young fellow then. I would have been... So it was all pretty scary and wild to me. The western suburbs of Brisbane in the 1970s, there's a lot of uh, teenagers with nothing to do, basically. And, you know, my group of friends, there's a lot of drinking in public parks. And when I hear Stranded, I think of the, the midnight train was the last train home from the city and was always fraught with the danger of coming across the Anala boys or the Oxley boys, all these gangs of teenage boys that would threaten violence more than actually initiated, I think. I guess it did sum up what a lot of people were feeling, and that was pretty horrible stuff, you know. Things were changing, they were changing on a global basis, but Brisbane and where I came from, Ipswich was the southwestern side of Brisbane, and therefore I went to school at Crinder High School, which is where I met Ed and Chris and Ivor. So I guess we are all sort of misfits but not in the sort of normal way it's not like we did horrible things and bashed up people and we couldn't anyway oh no I could probably fight a little bit and uh, <laughs> um Ed, Chris was a guy who hardly went to school and things were changing but we weren't seeing it in our daily lives like you have to make your own 
thing to go to. You have to have your party or you just walk around. I just remember walking around and around and around or catching that train. And I remember Edgerton, you said, you wrote it on the last train. Well, well, that was just bang. That's true. That's just a horrible sense of going home to your parents' place. And after some, albeit might have been a good time, but back to the dark reality of uh, a society that possibly didn't understand you. And to sum it up, that, that sense of loneliness, I guess you could use the word alienation. That was Geoffrey Wegner, who played in The Saints and Laughing Clowns. Despite the often volatile atmosphere, the Saints persisted in developing their own style. Here's Ed Cooper. I'm, I was writing songs. None of us were that confident. And there wasn't a feeling that you could just go to somebody and say, listen to these songs, because working outside of a, a more established framework, you know, what we were playing wasn't what anybody else was playing, really. If it hadn't been for that night, Chris might still have gone on and done music, but it probably would have been something completely different. I had the idea for the sound of the band, but it would have sounded different without Bowie singing. And Ivor was the really important third party. He started off on keyboards, played bass, then went to drums, depending on what we needed in the band. It came together because everyone was really enthusiastic about it, you know. It sounds like you had a really strong sense of what you wanted to do, even though it wasn't being done anywhere else around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a scene the Saints came out of. Without a place to rehearse or perform, the Saints set up shop in an old building in Petrie Terrace, right near the police station. The gigs were empty or packed, frenetic and sweaty, and eventually closed down by the fire department because there were no fire exits. I would have only been 14, 15. But they'd have these gigs and they were legendary. But you had to know the right people. Their presence in the city was at that period, like 76, 77, before they left for the UK. They were so excitingly subversive. I'm seeing this through the lens of an adolescent boy and... The, the mystique and the, the legendary status they had in my eyes. At the time, my brothers got to Brisbane and lived in Petrie Terrace. Tony lived at the house behind where the Saints later set up the 76 Club. And my brother Rowan lived in that house prior to, to the Saints destroying it. So I grew up milking cows. And I'd, they'd bring me down to Brisbane, I suppose, for some cultural awareness just to get away from what I thought was a boring country-style life. And I remember Rowan was, is still a massive conservationist, and we would have these Friends of the Earth meetings in the same room where the Saints later would, would play. So eventually I'd be dead tired at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd just go to bed. And I heard this amazing noise, and I just couldn't sleep. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? It's not... Not Chuck Berry, it's not Creedence Clearwater, it's not Johnny Cash, it's not even Buddy Holly. Like, so what is it? And I went up on the Clifton Street, the street frontage. As you get towards the front of the house or the shop front, as it was, where you could look in the window and see everything in the room. And there's this set of buttocks sitting there. And as I was looking across, I could see this guy just welding this axe like like Ed said, Ed was just playing manic. And then this head peered around and looked at me and it's in blue smoke. And it was Chris Bailey whose ass was sitting in the window. So he was ass in the window while he was singing. There was a lot of people and it was just going off and I was probably bewildered and excited. That was Anthony McCreese and Pete Burney. Here's Chris Bailey. Pedro Terra seemed to be the pinnacle of our domestic arrangements in those days. Actually, my sister Mary was there first. It was her house. Then I moved in. And then she and her boyfriend, I think, yes, moved out. (laughs) There must have been a hint of teenage spirit on the way. Because Iva, I think, moved in next. And then all sorts of folk moved in. (laughs) And it got quite smelly. And I moved out. And then when we started playing there, it became a bit of a hangout. And what was it like to play there? Why did you decide to do that? It was easy. We rehearsed there. It wasn't really a gig. It was a rehearsal room full of people. 
but, but very exciting nonetheless. There wasn't a stage, everyone was on the same level, mm. except it felt quite professional. And we did sets and everyone would drink and chats and then the band would play and people would go bonkers. I, perfect. That's If you're a teenager, I guess, were we teenagers? Yes, we were teenagers. How scary. James Dixon, who worked at Rocking Horse Records, was a band member of The Survivors, New Christs, and more recently, Radio Birdman. I heard through some connections that there was a gig going on there, and this was just prior to them leaving for Sydney and on to the great European pasture. And the gig was completely sort of chaotic. There were a few people there. They played a few songs. Their amplifiers blew up. And then they just played records. <laughs> and, and, and But the thing was that the records were really great because I remember them having a copy of The Shadows of Night, a 60s American garage band that had backdoor men. And it was the first time I'd seen that record and the first time I'd heard it. And it must have been you know, Ed's record or maybe Chris's or somebody's. But years later, I thought about it. I thought the very title of that record is so symbolic of actually what they were doing. They were working in the music industry, but at a, such an independent level and rather than as everyone had had to do before, like walk through the front door of record companies in order to get anything, these guys were working their way through the back door. The song I'm Stranded seems almost a fable, written on the train, recorded independently, knocked back by every record company in Australia, terrible reviews, individual copies posted to magazines and record companies overseas with Ed's parents' home as the return address. Well, the song was written, it wasn't just one kind of session. I, I wrote the opening chord the intro to the song and the chorus and I had a, a verse which over time we dropped and Chris wrote a new set of lyrics to it so some of the working is, is in a little bit obscured through the fact that it went through two stages. You wrote it when you were on a train? Yeah that's true yeah I, well, I used to go to work and Turinga Station, if anyone wants to go and visit and play, play flowers or something. I tend to hear it in odd sort of situations where I'm not really necessarily in control of it. Occasionally it comes on television. It has had pretty much the same sort of impact that it's always had. I think it's really impressive. I don't think it's me. I just think, what is that? Great sounding opening guitar riff, you know, those chords. It sounds really strong. When Bailey comes in with the vocal, that sounds really strong. After we recorded it, I mean, to some extent, you kind of, you know, just sort of distance yourself a little bit from it. And that, as time goes on, becomes more distanced. Yeah, it's just a great record. I mean, yeah, it sounds incredibly boastful, but it stands up to pretty much any sort of rock and roll record and that's what we were aiming for and uh, we did it. I've never had any sort of difficulty listening to it. I mean, some, talking about it sometimes because it's such a focus of people's attention. I, I think it's actually a really great recording and performance. I think that's what makes it when you kind of pull it apart as a song. It's the way it's played is as important as what we're playing. It's three chords and you're out of there as someone once described it, three chords and a cloud of dust, and then you're gone. When I occasionally hear it, it has its charms. It's an oral photograph to me of a particular time and place that whilst it's still very strong in my memory, sadly it's gone for 
it doesn't exist for me anymore, um, except as a memory. And to quote Johnny Thunders, you can't put your arms around a memory. The, the making of it, the five-minute versions of it out in the cow sheds, because we used to rehearse sometimes at a farm that I think we got through some rich bloke that one of my sisters knew. Very rustic, actually. That was probably my favorite times of the early years, was just us with lots of alcohol rehearsing in a cow farm. We had access to that. There's something about rock and roll and amplification is in the wrong place. And that's how we sort of stumbled into sounding the way we did, because I think the intention may well have been to be an R&B band when we started out. And I thought we were an okay R&B band, but it started to get louder and louder and louder. And then solid state amplification briefly became the wall of noise that we were. As a three-piece, we made an awful lot of noise. We were able to have masses of volume and quite primitive amplification. It's easy to, to understand why we sounded the way we did. Whilst we may have been trying to emulate others, found a kind of a, an original little, a little area that we could call our own. Because I, I think it's true of subsequent work of mine, which sound nothing like Stranded, but there's a thread that continues on that is like Stranded. And even Ed, in his most... I want to be into jazz and I want to try different musics and play with the boundaries of music. Even in his most esoteric, there's a thread that goes, and I can see it. It's still kind of there, even though it, it doesn't sound anything like it. It's the same intention and the same attitude. And then a review comes out in the UK that will change the music scene in Brisbane and beyond. I'm Stranded is highlighted as the single of this and every week. EMI in the UK wants a contract. The Saints escape to Sydney, the UK, Paris. They play on the same bill as Talking Heads and the Ramones. The song becomes an anthem to many. I was completely gobsmacked when it got that fantastic review in sounds. I used to get the English papers after they were published in London because they'd come by sea mail usually. And... To read that review after the single had been released in Australia, it was probably six months afterwards, came as a real shock because it died a death in Australia. It was released here. No one, you know, no one played it, no one bought it. And then to see it get such a good review in London and then the buzz and it came as a real surprise to, to everyone back here, everyone in the music scene anyway. If not just ordinary people, they'd go, who? Who were the saints? Whereas those who knew Chris and, and Ed were equally surprised because they'd been so unsuccessful here in Australia. And then to have almost like Coles to Newcastle, they send what the English thought was an Australian punk record to England, where punk was already in flames and well on the way to becoming a cultural phenomenon. So that was a real surprise to probably them as much as us back here in Australia. Basically... I was sitting at a friend's place and he came in and said, oh, listen to this and put this single on. And it was kind of like, oh, my God. <laughs> and all my friends were going, oh, that's awful. And I'm just sitting there with this other friend of mine. And we were just looking at each other and it was kind of like, oh, that's, they're talking to us. Someone had made something for us. And then I think uh, not long after that, they played 10 seconds of the Sex Pistols on the TV. And that, that was it. We were hooked. That was Phil Stafford, who went on to be the editor of Ram magazine. And Peter Buckley. Here's Bernadette Keys. The frenetic energy and excitement, I couldn't help but move. And hearing it as a kind of teen and just being so excited by the sound. And then just seeing the video clip and this dirty house and these scruffy-looking people 
There was an ennui in Brisbane at that time. There was a kind of a boredom, a kind of a listlessness. It was like this intangible, even though we're all so young and doing so many things and so, you know, alive, moving out of home for the first time, negotiating adult relationships and work and uni. So the song to me, it's like the, the, the cognitive dissonance that we were feeling when I was 17 years old, living at home and I was a student nurse working full-time and studying and I first heard it on 4IP, which was a commercial station, and um, they said, now, here's this Brisbane band and they're doing really well in England and they've been signed to EMI and no one knows them ab about them in Brisbane. What do you think of this song? So I thought, wow. Because at that time I was listening to Rod Stewart and the Eagles and Billy Joel and... And I thought, wow, this is from Brisbane. So the song just takes me back to being a suburban girl. And then um, my girlfriend, who was also a nurse, she bought the album and I'd go to her place and we'd play it and, and we'd dance and we'd sing Stranded <laughs> together as one. That was Ursula Medjew. Here's author Claire Halliday. I'd grown up pretty typical 70s childhood, spending Sunday evenings glued to the TV and then around that time, Countdown had launched its own magazine. I was 14 and feeling misunderstood, I know, is nothing new at that age. But I guess my own teen angst had been ramped up a few notches because I'd found out I was adopted a few years earlier. And then that monthly music magazine featured a pen pals page and, and the stage was set. And I jumped at the chance to, to write this kind of embarrassing now, very impassioned public call out for someone, really anyone, who might want to compare notes on bands. And in reply, I got this 15-year-old guy who wrote back to me. His name was Sean. He was from Morwell. And his letter came complete with a mixtape that he'd made just for me, filled with songs that he said I should know. And he was an older person. I was happy to be schooled. I wanted to make some new musical discoveries and I stuck the tape in my crappy cassette player in my bedroom in Plimpton and the speakers just thumped. It was this raw energy, just full force. And it was an Australian band and I thought it was brilliant. I'm lost, babe. I've got no direction. I'm stranded. It felt like it opened this portal for me. Everybody looks just the same. There was a kind of arrogance about it, if you got it. That's how it felt to me anyway. Like understanding what they're singing about means you're part of some kind of secret, like an understanding that only you have, kind of like a disenfranchised kind of superiority, I suppose. Some songs, they're kind of like smells. You know how they just link you to memories. They have this amazing power to kind of suck you into this kind of memory capsule and place you in a moment, whether it's geographical or emotional. It was just this pure primal energy. And this idea that there was so much out there in the world to find out about. Hearing it for the first time in 1976 though, it was like an atomic bomb going off in your face. To this day, to me, it remains the greatest piece of punk rock ever recorded and one of the greatest bits of music ever recorded. It might have come a few months after Ramones' first LP, but it had an explosiveness and a wildness that the Ramones, as great as they were, just didn't have and couldn't match. I'm Stranded is just a powerhouse rock and roll record, you know, beautiful, beautiful in its wildness. It threatens to fall apart at any time, but at the same time, it's got a metronomic, it's a metronomic bulldozer. It's a beast of a thing. It's out of control, yet it's fully in control. Yeah, my band once played at the, well, you know, many times, but on this occasion we played at the Prince of Wales in, the, in St Kilda in the mid-80s and I was walking past Topolino's Italian restaurant and uh, noticed Chris Bailey sitting in the window at a table on his own. Now, I don't usually get starstruck and would never bother someone like him, you know, having dinner, but the thought really crossed my mind to go in and say hello and tell him what his band's song meant to me. I didn't. And I kind of like to think that he would have, if I did, he would have looked me up and down, sneered and told me to fuck off, which of course would have been perfect. That was Jeff Stevens from the band Exploding White Mice. Here's Jodie Adams, who was a journo for Ram magazine. I went to this gig and it was in the middle of summer, stinking hot day. It was on the beach, on the sort of back dune area next to the car park at a big 
place called Long Reef in Sydney on the northern beaches. The second the Saints started, maybe even before they started, about four people to the left of me, there was this very young kid. He would have been 15, something like that. He was a lot younger than the rest of the crowd. And he just started from, play stranded, play stranded. And this just went on and on and on. He occasionally did stop to draw breath or because he was near to fainting in the heat. <laughs> and then he'd start up again. And as they just kept ignoring him, he, you know, got more and more, play stranded, you fuckers. Can't you hear me play stranded? I think it was just because he was so young. And a lot of us were just, like, fascinated to see <laughs> how Chris would respond to this. Uh, it just kept going and going. Kids gradually getting more annoyed and more worn out. And anyway, so <laughs> they didn't. And at one point, Chris says, okay, well, uh, we're about to finish up now, but we've got a special song that we want to dedicate to our fan in the front row. <laughs> and he got down from the stage and he walked across right in front of the kid on the other side of this little wire fence and he just walked straight up to this kid and he was literally almost nose to nose with the kid and he said, you want stranded? And the, uh, the kid was in shock and then Chris just proceeded to literally spit stranded out in this guy's face, just punching out every single word of the lyrics. You want to hear this song, I'm going to fucking sing it to you. And that was it. There's already Ellis' photo of a very young Nick Cave at a Saints gig at the Tiger Lounge in Melbourne in 1977, staring at Chris Bailey, who's sitting down on the stage with his back to the audience, sweat dripping. You can almost see Nick's brain ticking, this intense gaze as if he's taking notes. Nick went on to collaborate and perform with both Ed and Chris. It does seem unusual to me, like the ballroom scene, Nick Cave, all of those people. They are all really literary. Sometimes to the point of painful. (laughs) (laughs) I did it it too with the Bad Seeds ones. They're a fine pop group and all that, and just a barrel of laughs, I guess. They're, They're kind of like some sort of Presbyterian cult. On the tour bus, I used to laugh to myself because there seemed to be like a competition of who could actually have the biggest book open in the tour bus that seemed to be the most studious. I'd done some vocals for them and then consequently joined them on a trip around the world. Oh, did you? Was that when you did that crazy film clip? Oh, fuck, fuck who knows. Oh, bring it on. But hardly the, the finest hour of... Mr. Cave or all myself. They were really nice girls. To this day, I still don't quite get it. On many levels, I don't get it. Nick and I are very different people, and to put us on stools seemed very cruel, <laughs> very stupid thing to do. And then to surround us with women of colour shaking their bottoms on the screen. I, I still can't work it out as a concept, uh, and maybe that's its beauty. There is no concept. So it's very da-da. <laughs> Nick isn't the only musician who has been heavily influenced by the Saints. There's also Kurt Cobain, who recorded a Saints song that was never released. Just listen to the opening bars of Story of Love on their debut album to see the impact on Nirvana. Here's Vicky Henderson who was the Saints manager overseas. I never knew at the time, and I wish we had him. Springsteen was a massive fan in the early days of the Saints. He, and then he actually covered Just Like Firewoods, which was his last single he put out last year. Springsteen had been a fan since, you know, the late 70s. He would go into record stores in the UK and places and just look for stuff that he, that he couldn't find in America. 
and he, he liked a lot of the punk and the grunge stuff. Much has been made of the split between Chris Bailey and Ed Cooper over the years. The pressures of recording the music the band wanted to play, which made them at odds with their UK record company, the punk fans who didn't want the band to evolve at all. The Saints returned to Australia in different incarnations, with Ed forming the Laughing Clowns and Chris keeping the name and banding together with other musicians like Chris Burnham, Janine Hall and then the birthday party's Tracy Pugh. The fans often split into separate Bailey and Cooper camps, but some saw the bigger picture. Here's Jody Adams. Laughing Clowns? I'm pretty sure I saw them from their first gig. I saw them a minimum of 14 times throughout 1980 and the Saints about six times. Well, it's probably a fashionable thing to say now and people who probably hated them now go, oh, yeah, I love this. But I just loved them from day one. My attitude about the split, so there were saints and laughing clowns, my attitude was completely being overjoyed. Hey, a great band's become two great bands, both playing love it. wonderful types of different music, what's not to like. We know women are certainly more mature than males until about the age of 25 or whatever. So, um, Sorry, did you, you say know, 75 or? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, spot on. Um, yeah, I was probably more mature in attitude than many of my contemporary male gig-goers or writers because I never got the, if you like this band, you can't like this band. Or if you like this music, you can't like this music. Like many artists and musicians who left Brisbane in a mass exodus, the Saints were forced to escape to realise their dreams. But the act of leaving could be fraught back home. Here's Tex Perkins. My older brother, who is um, eight years older than me, he was friends with a, a band called The Leftovers. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Saints basically left as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the same, the same, that Stranded came out in 76 and by 77 they were in London my perspective on the Saints began through the leftovers and this is a very Brisbane thing if you leave Brisbane you, you're treated like like a traitor oh fuck you who do you think, who do you, think you are <laughs> leaving Brisbane you wanker that's how the leftovers saw the Saints they didn't revere them. They were like, like, oh, fuck, fuck them. I had a distorted view of the Saints, and and it, my brother and the leftovers' attitude towards them kept it, kept me at distance. But over forty years later, many like Ed Cooper have returned to live in Brisbane, and with gigs like Pig City, based on Andrew Stafford's book, bringing the band back together for one-off concerts to punters from the original days. There has been a concerted effort to memorialise their history. As I can't cross the border, Ursula Medjew takes me on a video tour and walks me through Ed Cooper Park in Oxley. She starts and ends at the sign. The park is green and lush, freshly mowed, native bush habitat with paperbark trees and lots of bird life, a picnic table and playground. The Oxley Creek, Ursula adds playboys, not really running, fringed with what she calls pop plants and bulrushes. And behind, with mountains in the distance, the hints of a cow paddock, where the park seems to go on forever. How does it feel going for a stroll in Ed Cooper Park? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go with your family? I take, I take the walk, I, I, take, I take the dog, you know. It's also the scene for a video that I'm going to be doing at some stage for a, a song that was on a completely different album much later. I was reminded of that that was kind of a fairly little, nice little uh, creative kind of interlude there. But yeah, that no, feels great. It's a nice park. <laughs> I'll have to go there next time in Brisbane. Yeah. People go and have their photo taken in front of the sign. Oh, do they? Yeah, yeah. A life-size cardboard cut out of me for only a few dollars more to rent. Musician and academic John Willsteed campaigned hard for a mural of the Saints, which sits on a wall close by to Petrie Terrace and backs onto the train line where Cooper wrote the first bit of I'm Stranded. But for Chris Bailey, who never had Australian citizenship 
and is unable to return to live here, the attachment to place and the song is tricky. That, that's what's wrong with maybe the whole Brisbane Saints thing. I, why is it after all of these years you sort of uh, embraced, whereas 40 years ago, who gave a shit? I find something very strange about that. I mean, I've gone to Brisbane and I think the Saints in their early years and through all the different incarnations have genuinely touched people and there's been a connection. And I'm very proud of that and I like that. But I don't think any of it deserved a government-sponsored mural. I mean, an organic mural I could certainly embrace. Because I think many years ago, Ivor did a mural, which was still in London in the late 90s or early thousands. It managed to survive that long. And I remember Ivor doing it. It was just a piece of graffiti somewhere in Camden. I don't think it's there anymore, but it, it lasted a very long time. Side note, Chris keeps using the word muriel as a tease because I blurted it out wrong earlier. This led to a whole intricate discussion of the darkness of Muriel's wedding. Bruce Springsteen would probably fall into the same category of folk I've met that I'm very surprised I've met. There's a conversation I had with him once. I was always a bit envious of people like him because they are people of place. Like He's very obviously American, New Jersey, and his music resonates that. And even Edmund, to a funny point, I don't think Stranded is particularly locked into being Brisbane. Ed has a certain quality that marks him as coming from Queensland. There's something about what he does is kind of of place. And, and this is a compliment, and I've always felt that I haven't had that. And it's given my music a different flavour that's a little uncomfortable because I really don't know where it's from because I really don't know where I'm from, which is, I guess, the reason why. I still feel very out of place. Like a snake calling on. After Guy leaves home, Benyat meets him at a halfway point at a cafe in the city where strange shapes hang from the ceiling like bad papier-mâché school projects and there's alcohol under the counter. Guy looks like some filthy creature who dwells in a cave, but in here they don't stare at him like they do on the street. Tables of junkies, tables of wogs, tables of ballroom punters washed up in the city. But Benyat doesn't like the city at night. It means trying to avoid the police, the skinheads and yobbos. He pretends he's going to a movie. Otherwise, his mum asks him lots of questions about Guy, questions that he doesn't know how to answer. Just before he left home, Guy lined his arms with tattoos, an eagle, radio birdman. He met this bloke who lived around the corner near the overpass who sold speed and dope cheap. The dealer was fat and gentle, and his favourite book was The Dice Man. Guy talked about it all the time. Now Guy rolls the dice for anything. To hitchhike to St Kilda, to take heroin, to start a band, to change his name, to leave Benyat behind.
Enyart likes it best when the boys take turns putting on records. The Stooges, Velvet Underground, Television. Guy stole all the records from Missing Link. The conversation comes around to craft work. Everyone wants to move to London, or New York, or Berlin. Sometimes when Roland talks about music, Benyart feels like he's part of a secret group discovering new things no one else knows about. Buried treasure. Benyart sits on a mattress and prepares for the day when someone will ask him a question about what music he likes. Benyart sits and knows that if someone asks him, he won't know what to answer. There are so many wrong answers. Guy says that everyone pretends to have read War and Peace, but they have really only read Crime and Punishment. Benyat hasn't read any Russian novels. There aren't any in the school library. Sometimes at Guy's place he feels like a tourist, even though he's lived in Melbourne his whole life. Guy's friends in St Kilda are exotic, like those photos in National Geographic. It's like he becomes a camera as he sits watching them. One of those Super 8s that his mum has. It's all being recorded inside him so he knows what to do and what to wear and how to feel. Before Guy left, his mum would put up a sheet and they'd watch the movies of his dad. The movies were always out of focus and too dark and would leave him with a sense of wanting more. Guy would always want to play video games instead. But now it's not fuzzy and nothing is wasted or lost. He can recall it all later when he needs to. Jenny's the only one who ever sits near him, though. She has bright red hair and a black velvet dress and fishnets that are all ripped. Her lipstick and mascara are always smudged, but he likes it. She carries a stack of canvases that she props at his feet. She shows Benyat the first one. It's all white with a black square and it has words on it. An original oil painting. Benyat doesn't really get it. Jenny hands the other paintings to him one by one. A girl with long red hair. She wears a black dress and a bow and has her hands to her face as if she's crying. The girl looks like her. Jenny gets a small dog-eared paperback out of her bag and hands it to him. Take it, I've finished. Something tells me you'll relate to it, the way you always sit there in the same spot. He holds it, resting it in his lap. Goodbye to Berlin. He has no idea where to put it. When I show people my paintings, people say, that's not art. I like that. That's when I know I'm getting somewhere, she says. That was the I'm Stranded chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which was published by Transit Lounge and shortlisted for the 2021 SPN Book of the Year Award. 
The book is structured as a mixtape of late 70s and 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an e-book too. The audiobook is coming soon. Our version of I'm Stranded features the incredible Penny Eichinger on vocals and guitar and was recorded and produced by Richard Andrew at Pharmacy Studios. Penny has also done a video clip for Stranded with Rob Wellington and RMIT students. Check it out on YouTube. For the original version of the song, search out The Saints. Coming up in the next episode, we head to WA to the beautifully brutal and melancholic vision of David McComb. And the song? Wide Open Road by The Triffids. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Kraut, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer and Louis Shellier Gray. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. Thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with research. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney with vocals by La Trouble, a.k.a. Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.